Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan Ledwith. For those of you who don't know me, I've been here a couple times before, I think. I've done a couple of the men's breakfast talks. Um, I think the last time I was here, I did the now famous Batman sermon. Were any of you here remember that? Um, if you don't know who I am, let me uh, tell you a little bit about myself so that you kind of understand where I'm coming from. All right. Uh, I've been a friend of uh, JP's for a long time. I've known him for, I guess it's 15 or something like that years now. I, I know, I've known him since he was a furry little hobbit youth pastor here. And now he's grown up and he's all clean shaven and buff and everything. And I met uh, Pastor Brian this morning and, and the first thing, it was the first time I'd met him. And I was just kind of stunned by how much like JP he actually looks. And I'm thinking, these people have the discipleship thing down pat. I mean, JP's just reproducing himself and everybody, you know. But um, we've known each other a long time, and uh, we're good friends. And I've been married for 27 years, yes, to the same woman. And uh, I have three girls, 12, 14, and soon to be 16. I live in the Estrogen Palace. I'm a minority in a sorority. I have lots of pain and suffering going on in my life that God uses to teach me lots of cool stuff, all right? Now, one of the things that I have been learning is that uh, love is complicated, or at least it seems that way. I, I sometimes perceive it that way. You know, maybe that's my fault, maybe, maybe it really is, but do any of you feel that, that love is complicated? Some of you do. Okay, I'm not alone in this, all right? One of the reasons I think that love seems so complicated is because it's a word that we use to describe so many different things, isn't it? I mean, I submit to you today that there are, any, at any given time, a thousand different meanings for that little word, love, floating around on any given day. We say we love pizza. We love the Red Sox. Well, maybe not last night. But we love to laugh. We love to cook. We love our mom and dad. We love our neighbor as ourself. Eh, we love God. Now, love in each of those instances means something just a little bit different, doesn't it? Okay? Let me illustrate this for you real quick. Do we have any married men here this morning? Are there any married men? Are you sitting with your wife? <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to lean over to your wife right now. Don't, don't hold back. I, I just repeat what I say. I want you to say, I love you like I love pizza. <laughs> Did you see that? The laughter, the cold stares. Somebody got slapped back there. I saw that. Okay, I think we have to admit that, you know, it, so don't, we see that now, men, right? There's a big difference between the love you should have for your wife and the love you should have for pizza. It's two different things. So I think one of the things that we've been learning is that love has become kind of a catch-all term for all manner of different meanings and applications. Would you agree with that? Okay, so in light of this, 
My question this morning is, do we know, do we understand what that spiritual love that God wants us to have for one another is? Do we know what that love looks like? What does love, the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love he wants us to have for one another, look like in real life? Now, Paul does a great job, probably the best job he could possibly do, putting that into words for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And the little summary, the little section here, verses 4 through 7, really kind of gets to the core of it. And I know that this was read before the service started, but I want to read it again so that it's right in front of you because we're going to be focusing on this passage the entire time we have together today. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Isn't that beautiful? Now, that description of love is very simple, right? It's very straightforward and easy to understand. There's no complicated words or concepts there. Does anybody have any problem understanding what any of those words mean? I don't think you need to go to seminary to have any kind of special insight into this, okay? So what I have been learning is that while I understand that love is shown by being patient, the people I often find myself with, the problems I face, the places I find myself in often tempt me to lose my patience. Am I alone in this? You're sitting there stunned. All right, no, I'm constantly finding, you know, I understand what it means to be kind. And there are people that it's easy to be kind to, and there are people that I want to be kind to, but let's be honest, there are lots more people out there who really tempt me to leave the kind behind. You know what I'm saying? Okay? The challenge isn't understanding the concept of spiritual love. The challenge is in living it. That, that, my friends, is where it gets complicated, isn't it? Okay? One of the things I've been learning in studying this definition of love is that love is shown by self-control. If we want to love others the way that Jesus loves us, it's going to take self-control. Now, I think the most important thing we need to do as we start this out is we need to talk a little bit about what is self-control. Self-control means to have control of yourself. <laughs> you, you weren't expecting anything more flowery than that, were you? All right, look, it, 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 it doesn't get deeper than that. Self-control means exactly what you think it means. The original Greek for self-control is self-control. <laughs> okay. 
It means to have control of yourself, control of your desires, your aspirations, your thoughts, your actions. It means that you're in control of yourself. Now, why is it so, why is self-control so important to love? Okay, the first reason, there are three reasons. The first reason is because people that, well, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> the first reason you self-control is because of people. Because people are not easy to love. Have you noticed that? This is church, be honest. Okay? Someone once said that original sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Truer words have never been said. On any given day, all of us can experience the fact that people can be hurtful, self-serving, manipulative, nitpicky, prideful, thumb-sucking, spoiled brats. I often get that before I leave my house this morning. All right? Now, number two, lest you think the problem is only with them and not with you, okay? Self-control is also essential to loving well because it is not in our nature to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's our nature to give love to people we feel deserve it. It's our nature to give love to people who we think have earned it. But when people disappoint, when people fail, when people blow up, when people don't listen, when they don't show respect, loving people the way that Jesus loves us becomes hard. It becomes costly. That's why we need self-control when we're learning to love other people. No, how is self-control important to love? Okay? We need self-control for three reasons. And the first reason is this. We need self-control to hold back. For instance, being patient requires that we hold back the natural impulse to be impatient. You see what I'm saying? In fact, the only time we really can be showing patience is when we're tempted to be impatient. Right? Right, right, okay. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never needed lessons or how-to books or role models to envy what other people have, to boast in my own achievements, to take pride in myself, or to dishonor others. I don't need any help being self-serving. Those things all come naturally. <laughs> it's true. All right, I'm just being honest. I can get angry with the best of them, and I find myself naturally adept at holding wrongs and smiling when bad things happen to my enemies. <laughs> All right? Now, if you're honest with yourself, you know the same thing's true with you. That's why you're laughing at me, because it's true for you. Now, we may be more excellent at some of those lousy things than others, but it's our nature to not love that way, the way that is described to us in 1 Corinthians 13. Our nature is to speak out and to lash out and to drown out 
rather than hold back so that we can flex the muscles of self-control and love one another like we're supposed to, like God wants us to. Second, we not only need to have the discipline to hold back the negative behaviors that are contrary to love, we need to be working not to hold back the behaviors and thoughts and actions that spiritual love actually is. In other words, we need to be holding back stuff that shouldn't be going out. We also need self-control to push out some of the things that we, that, that it takes self-control because it's hard to give. We need to be dis, disip, uh, disciplining ourselves to give kindness and to give it freely and to give it willingly even to people who we are sure will not appreciate it or reciprocate it. We need to hold back emotional responses to the wrong things so that we can be building the strength to grow the emotional responses to the right things. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. Let me tell you, it is hard to rejoice in the truth of God's love for you for the truth of his forgiveness and grace and to rejoice in the truth of his holiness when you delight in the things that are contrary to love. And third, we need self-control to keep from giving up and giving in. This kind of love that Paul is talking about is very personal. It's very costly. And I'll be honest, it hurts. There isn't always a clear return on our investment. And because of that, love can be very hard, and therefore it takes serious self-control to hang in there when things are dark, when things are messy, when things are painful. It takes self-control to trust, to protect, to persevere, to hope, when we can't see where we're going or when we can't see why we aren't going, as the case may be. You follow me? All right, is this making sense? All right. That's what self-control is. That's why it's important to love. How do you learn self-control? You don't learn self-control by reading about it. You don't learn self-control by hearing about it. In fact, I am honest enough, I am an honest enough person to say, not other people are this honest, but I'm honest enough to say that listening to this sermon on self-control will not help you grow self-control one bit. You say, so, so why did JP invite you in to finish our sermon series on the spiritual fruits by talking about self-control? If you can't grow, well, I was wondering that myself. <laughs> but the reality is, while my message may help you to see that you need self-control, it may help you to understand how important self-control is, it isn't going to grow self-control for you at all because nobody's that good. You don't learn self-control by learning about it. You learn self-control by practicing Okay. 
God is going to teach you self-control by putting you in places where you need to use it. So, don't be surprised if you continually find yourself, like me, with people and problems and situations that test the limits of your self-control. That's how you learn. God isn't mad at you. He's not punishing you. He's trying to grow the fruits of the Spirit. Now, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians you know, 5.23, you guys have been looking at that up to this point. And that means it's something that's grown by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. It's a fruit. It's a proof that the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in you. That the Holy Spirit is intentionally growing that in you. That's what that means. But let's be honest, it's not instant, is it? You don't get the Spirit, and then you don't get, boom, I've got the fruits. They're right there. We'd love that, wouldn't we? But that's not how it works. While it's spiritual, meaning that those fruits are grown by the Spirit, it's not grown independent of what you say and do. Self-control is a discipline that you learn as you are learning to walk with and work with the Spirit. You need to be intentional. Well, there it is. Be intentional about growing it with the Spirit. If any of you have ever had a garden or have anything to do with farming or tried to grow plants in your house, have any of you ever done that? Plants, flowers, gardens. Nobody? No, come on. Raise your hand. Okay, there you go. You'll, you'll kind of know what I mean. If you have ever tried to do that, you know, oftentimes we say gardeners, farmers, that they grow things. That's not really true, is it? They don't really grow anything. What they do is they work with that seed so that it does grow. Right? We work the soil, we feed it, we water it, we make sure the conditions are right so that the seed does what it naturally does on its own, grows. Okay? So it's very, very similar with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be growing those fruits of the Spirit in you. And it doesn't. It doesn't need your help in order to do those things. The Holy Spirit's going to do that all on its own. But... Kind of like the farmer tills the ground, kind of like the farmer, you know, fertilizes the soil and waters it, gets rid of walks, rocks, gets rid of weeds. We need to be doing that too. We need to be working with the Spirit as He's growing those things inside us so that they grow better. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Self-control is a discipline that you grow as you practice it. It takes intentional work on your behavior. And it takes even being more intentional about having self-control in response to other people's behavior. Amen? Now the next thing you need to be doing, you need to be learning and growing if you want uh, self-control, is submission. Self-control requires submission to Jesus' teaching, to his yoke. That's what he was referring to when 
In Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30, he says this, and I know you've heard this before. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does yoke mean? What's he talking about? He's talking about his understanding, interpretation of, and practice of Scripture. That's what Jesus' yoke is. So it means following him as his disciple. It means listening to him. It means conducting yourself in truth and responding to others in grace. And it means doing that when you don't feel like doing. It means doing that when you don't see why not living that way is the wrong way. We need to follow Jesus' leadership and listen to the leading of his spirit and trust him. Now let me tell you something here. Let me stop and tell you that there's a big difference between submission and surrender. We love to sing about surrender, but we're talking about submission. Submission will grow self-control. Surrender will not. It may look like it at first, but the results will be very different. It's like somebody controlling your diet and exercise so that you lose weight, surrender, versus you deciding, I'm going to change my habits and what I eat and how I exercise so that I lose weight. Submission. You see the difference? Okay, the difference is when we are surrendering, when like the person who's having their diet and food and exercise controlled, they're going to lose weight, right? But as soon as that thing controlling them is gone, it's right back to the way it was, baby. Bring out the ice cream. It's going right in there. But when we but when we submit to those things. It's different, isn't it? That's the big difference. That's why a lot of these diets and things don't work. It's not that you can't lose weight. It's that we surrender when it's painful. And when the pain is gone, we go back to the way things were. Does that make sense? If the surrender never turns to submission, you're never going to get really good at self-control. We need to not only surrender to Jesus, but we need to submit and become disciples of his. Does that make sense to you? All right. Enough preaching on that. Next thing, self-control requires us to be meek and humble. See, we have a natural inclination to think more of ourselves than we should and less of other people than we should. When we think we're right, we like it to show. And when we think others are wrong, we want them to know. Right? That's why we're laughing, because it's true. All right? When we approach people from a position of humility, we'll be thinking more about them and less about ourselves. That's what humility is. It isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less and thinking more about the needs of others. 
Another thing we need to be growing if we want to be growing self-control is wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to act based on what you know. Wisdom will tell you that sometimes when it comes to love, discretion is the better part of valor. Wisdom will bring discernment about what the loving thing to do is or to say or to be in a particular situation with a particular person because what may be loving to one person in one situation may be really unloving to another person in a different situation. Does that make sense? Wisdom comes from having good judgment. How do you get good judgment? You have to have experience. How do you get experience? Poor judgment. <laughs> All right? Now, what's important about that is that it means we gain wisdom both from success and from failure. As we're learning how to listen to the Spirit, the more wisdom we're going to have in how to live things out in different situations, the more self-control we're going to be able to exercise. Now, one of the places that I have been learning this is in the importance of self-control when it comes to what I say or don't say. Does anyone else have that same trouble? Two of you, three of you? Don't be lying in church. <laughs> what we say is a big problem for lots of people, okay? Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. If that's true, if that's really true, if we really believe that, then we need to be learning to exercise self-control over what we say, right? It is so easy, it's, it is for me anyway, it is so easy to blur out negative, critical, self-serving stuff. And it's our words more than anything else that will choke and kill the growth of love in our hearts. James goes so far as to say that those who consider themselves religious, yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Proverbs 15 verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. What we say has incredible power. Whoever said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, was very misled. How many times have we heard in the news about a person committing suicide because of what was wrote, written about them by their friends on social media? But all of us, at least I hope, have we can remember times when somebody spoke the right words at the right time and how it just built life into us. Do you remember anything like that? Can you remember somebody saying just what you needed to hear? Just what you needed to hear. We don't forget those words that breathe life into us. Love 
grows in the hearts of those who speak in such a way as to breathe life into people. Now, I've found a great tool that I use in R.T. Kendall's book, Total Forgiveness. And I want to share this with you as I close this sermon today. Now, if you have the self-control to use it, it will help strengthen and deepen your ability to love others well. Kendall made an acrostic out of the word need. And what he wants you to do, and I would recommend that you do, is before you open your mouth to the thumb sucker that is standing in front of you that you think really needs some correction or that has really gotten you angry or has really hurt you or you just think needs somebody to put them in their place. If you ask yourself, does this person need to hear this before you talk, it will be really good for both you and that person that you're wanting to talk to. First, N, is it necessary? Is it necessary to say what you want to say? 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. If you love this person, is it really necessary for you to say what you want to say? Is it necessary for them to hear what you want to say? Or is it more about you rationalizing that it's necessary for you to say what you want to say? And remember, the definition of rationalize is to tell yourself rational lies. We need to remember Proverbs 11 verse 12 Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Sometimes, people, the loving thing to do is to say nothing. Now, that's almost harder than saying something gracious. I willingly admit that, okay? We so much like strutting our stuff pointing out mistakes, getting in the last word. But the one who has understanding knows how to hold their tongue. That first E, encourage. Is what you're going to say going to encourage them? Will it make them feel better? That should be our intent. Paul says in Ephesians Uh, 4 verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is what you're going to say going to encourage them? Is it going to help them? Is it going to be a benefit to them? The second E is for edify. Is what you're going to say going to edify them? Will what you say build them up and make them stronger, or is it simply being said to tear them down? In other words, is what you want to say meant to make him or her, whoever that thumbsucker is, 
is it meant to make them better or is it meant to make you feel better? There's a big difference. And D, that D is for dignify. Will it dignify that person? Jesus treated people with a sense of dignity. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That means, let me put some real life application onto this verse. That means that every person, every man, woman, and child who's in this world today was made because God was pleased to make them. Right? God does whatever he pleases. He knit your soul. He knit the person's soul sitting next to you. He meant everybody's soul out of nothing for his glory. Think about it like this. Everything God does is an expression of his perfect love, of his wisdom, of his goodness, of his power. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with me on that? That everything God does, does that. Okay, the very fact then that you are here in this worship service, the very fact that you are listening to this uh, sermon implies that had God not created you, his creation would not be as good or as perfect or as much an expression of his glory as he would have wanted. Because God doesn't do things second best, right? Every man, woman, and child is a unique and necessary part of God's creation, therefore. And therefore, we should treat one another with dignity. Because that person, that thumbsucker, is somebody that God intentionally created and apparently intentionally put into your miserable life. And that person, if he's a Christian, is a brother or sister. And one of Christ's anointed, who he died for, they've got dignity. Is what you're going to say going to recognize that dignity and treat them with the dignity that they deserve? Now, if you can honestly say yes, to those four things, then you can really be reasonably sure that you are in a right place and you found the right words and you're coming from the right motivations to say something that really is telling the truth in Christian love. One of my most dreaded phrases in all of Christendom. I'm going to tell you something, Dan, in Christian love. Ugh. It almost never is, is it? Right? Now, let's be, but look, if you can't say yes, if you say no to one or more of those things, necessary, encourage, edify, dignity, if you can't say yes to those four things, you should hold your tongue. You need to think more about what you want to say. You need to pray more about why you need to say it. You may need to confess some things. You may need to realize that God doesn't want you to be the person talking about it. God may have somebody else who's in a better place to talk to that thumbsucker. But if we do that, 
If we exercise the self-control to, to discipline ourselves, to ask those questions before we speak, it's going to go a long way in cultivating an atmosphere of love that people are going to be irresistibly pulled to because that's the kind of love that Jesus has for you and me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the work that your Holy Spirit does in each of us. And Lord, help us to submit to you and to your work as you build the fruits of the Spirit and especially self-control inside us so that we can love you better and therefore love one another better. In Jesus' name we pray.